Well, it is. Uh, it's so great uh, to be with you all. I think it's been a year, um, but I, I love coming uh, to y'all's campus. I love worshiping with you. I love uh, being led in worship by Dave. Um, it's just I love being at Waterford. Uh, but what I love most about Waterford is that I get to be uh, with Gary uh, for a couple years before Gary came back here. We were at Herndon together, and it was uh, it was just a great. I just loved doing. I loved doing ministry with Gary, and so uh, so it's a pleasure. Uh, to be here alongside him, and I hope you know how fortunate you guys are to have him and Abby and their family. Yeah, we can, yes. Yeah. Um, at the first service, I said he was my pastor crush, and it felt weird, so I'm not going to say that again, uh, but he is, and so... Yeah, I know, right. Uh, but I, like I said, I'm glad to be with you all. And I'm glad that I get to talk about Zechariah because it is, uh, this prophet in particular has been one um, that has meant so much to me personally in my relationship uh, with God. In fact, one of my very first sermons I ever preached when I was a youth pastor uh, 10 years ago uh, was on this passage. And it's a passage that just keeps coming back to me um, and keeps pointing me towards uh, truth. And so I'm excited that I get to share uh, with y'all this morning. And so the first question uh, that I want us to all kind of think about together as we approach uh, the text is have you ever wondered or worried that God's done with you? Have you ever wondered or worried that God's just done with you? Um, I, uh, I was having lunch with uh, someone who goes to Summit not too long ago, and, and he was a little bit in a spiritual funk. And, and as we were talking, um, he sounded very similar to me. And we started talking about how every couple years we both kind of get in this place where maybe it's a little bit of a depression, maybe it's a little bit of a, of a rut or a funk, um, and it's a place where we start just doubting everything. We start doubting ourselves, we start doubting God, we start doubting that it's all even real, um, and a lot of times, it, it, if, we, if we look deeper into what's going on, it has to do with our own sin. Um, in, in that uh, when, we, when we start looking at ourselves and start seeing some of the sin that we're struggling with, we start thinking, you know, I've been following Jesus for a long time. And if, if he's real and if he really can transform my life and if what he's done is that much of an impact, I should be a lot better than I am. And in fact, I'm not better than I am. And in fact, sometimes I don't even want to be better. And so, so then we start kind of getting in our head and thinking, well, maybe, maybe God's just not real. Maybe we're working really hard to please a God who, who doesn't exist. And, and so that's why we're not getting better. Or, or worse thought is maybe God is apathetic towards me. Maybe he's just done with me. Maybe I've messed up too many times that he's just over it. And it was really, uh, as, as awful as that sounds as a lunch conversation, it was very encouraging uh, to hear someone else express something that I probably feel every couple years. So the question is, have you ever wondered or worried if God was done with you? This summer, as we've been looking at the minor prophets, uh, we have seen a pattern of God's people over and over again. People turn against God. They start living counter to the way he designed them. God comes after them in the form of a prophet and says, hey, you are not being who I called you to be. I called you to be a blessing to all nations. The, the rest of the world is going to know who I am through you, and you're not showing them that. So repent and come back to me. The timeline that we've been looking at um, all, all summer with the prophets, you can see, like, 
every one of those prophets indicates a time where God's people messed up and God came back after them. So again and again and again. And they've been through a ton by the time we get to Zechariah. So, you know, after, after King Saul and David and Solomon, the, the kingdom uh, of Israel was split into two kingdoms. You had the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. As you can see, the northern kingdom didn't last nearly as long as the southern kingdom. Northern kingdom, all bad kings. All bad. All the time. The southern kingdom, pretty much all bad kings. There were a couple good ones in there, but the pattern was still the same. People would continue to turn away from God, uh, to indulge in kind of a sinful way of living. God would come after them, tell them to repent. Um, But as you can see, they would only last a little while, and then they'd fall back into it again. By the time we get to Zechariah, both the northern and the southern kingdom have fallen to enemy nations. In fact, the southern kingdom has been living in captivity in, in Babylon. And so during this time that they've been in captivity, uh, they've begun to adopt a lot of the customs and the culture of the community in which they live. But then they're invited back home. They're told they can go back to their home. So they go back to Jerusalem. But when they go back to Jerusalem, they go back pretty beat up, pretty broken, pretty messy. They've adopted a lot of sinful beliefs and lifestyle. So when they come back home, even though it's home, it doesn't feel like home. Even though they're back where where they belong, they feel like they don't. They feel like they're a pretty big mess. In fact, I'm assuming that most of them felt like God's got to be done with me. There's nothing left here for God to use. There's no way that God still loves me, and there's definitely no way that he can still use me. And so it's in that context that God sends Zechariah, one of the last prophets. The, the very last one's Malachi, but Zechariah is right before the end. And so the people have been through a ton by the time Zechariah shows up. And Zechariah shows up to this messed up, broken people who think that they've, they've, just, they've blown it too big. And he says, I've got a vision for you. And the vision is what we're going to look at today. It's found in Zechariah 3. Um, if you don't have a Bible, it's printed in your bulletin. Uh, but listen to these words. Then he, now again, this is the, the vision that God gave Zechariah so, so that he is God. Then he, God, showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right side to accuse him. The Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this man a burning stick snatched from the fire? Now Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. The angel said to those who were standing before him, Take off those filthy clothes. Then he said to Joshua, See, I have taken away your sin, and I will put fine garments on you. Then I said, Put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him while the angel of the Lord stood by. This is God's word. So Zechariah shows up to a people that are pretty broken and messed up, think that God is done with them. And he says, hey, I've got a vision for you. And this vision is of this courtroom, this holy courtroom of God's law. Now, the people hearing this vision would have been like, oh, man, that is, I don't want to hear about a courtroom. I don't want to hear about being judged. Uh, but that's what Zechariah gives them. Now, wherever you are as far as belief, how much uh, you believe the Bible to be true, if you know who Jesus is, um, we all feel like there is some courtroom that we are going to be standing before and not measure up. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you believe. It doesn't matter your religion. We all have in in the pit of our stomach this fear that one day we're going to appear before some judge and he's going to find us unacceptable. 
It's the reason that you and I have that reoccurring nightmare of showing up on the day of a test and not knowing about the test, right? And you, you didn't study, you didn't prepare. Or the dream of showing up someplace like school the first day naked. Why is that dream there? That dream is, is so deeply embedded in us that you and I are going to show up somewhere and be found unfit. That you and I aren't going to have what it takes. That we aren't going to be enough. I don't care what, it, what you believe or who you are. We all feel that. We all feel like there's some courtroom, there's some standard of perfection that if people really saw us, we definitely would not measure up. Um, uh, infomercials get this. Um, I miss infomercials. Uh, now, you know, we don't have cable, but we have like Netflix and Hulu. we have all the things. So it's not like I'm not watching TV anymore, but we don't have like regular TV where you're just flipping, you know, the channels and then come across an infomercial and get sucked in. I always get sucked in. I've got sucked in um, from when I was pretty young. When I went to college, I was so excited because I had my TV uh, in my room for the first time ever, which meant I could watch Friends whenever. My parents didn't let me watch Friends in high school, so I was watching Friends all the time. Um, and so I, I would watch Friends, and I had my own credit card. Um, and late at night, on TV, come infomercials. And so I would just get sucked in. And I would, I mean, every single one of them would get me. And you know how they start. They start with, with the guy who, who you look at and you think, well, that's me. The guy running down the beach with the dad bod, with the flab. I've always been, had a little bit extra weight, always been a little bit pudgy. And so I, even in college, I would watch that and be like, oh man, that's me. And you know, kids would be screaming and crying and looking away from him running down the beach. Um, and, and, the, and, the, and the infomercial would say, hey, this is you. But and then all of a sudden, it would show another guy running down the beach who's supposed to be the same guy, but he looks a lot more like Gary Abbott than me. And he's running down the beach. Um, and, you know, people are saying, oh, glory, you know. And, and they're like, well, you know what? You don't have to be this guy. You can be this guy, right? And then, you know, for three easy payments of $49.55, uh, you can become Gary Abbott. And so in college, and this is not an exaggeration, um, I bought the steamroll, uh, the, 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 uh, the ab roller, the ab dolly, the ab flex, and the steam buggy, uh, which has nothing to do with abs. But if you saw the way it cleaned grout, uh, you would buy it too. Um, so I spent hundreds of dollars on my abs and to this day have not seen one. Why did it work? Why did it work? Because in each one of us is this fear that we're going to be inadequate, that we're going to stand before the judge and be found unfit. So that's the vision that Zechariah brings God's people who have messed up again and again and again. He says, you are standing in the holy courtroom of God's law. And in the courtroom is Joshua. Joshua was the high priest. Now the high priest represented the people of God to God. So however the high priest looked before God is how you looked before God. That's why in the Old Testament, there's so many laws and rituals around the high priest, what he could and could not do, what he could, could not eat. If he was going to be going before the, the Lord on behalf of the people to make a sacrifice or atonement for sins, there were certain things he had to do. He had to go through a ritual bathing. He had to wear certain garments. There, it was all laid out um, in the Old Testament. And and here is Joshua, their high priest, their representative, and he's standing before the Lord, and he's in filthy rags. He didn't do the things that he was supposed to do. He didn't go through the bathing. He didn't have the right clothes on. So the people hearing this would have been like, oh, this is exactly what we thought. This is not going to end well for us. And it's not just that he didn't do the things that he should have done. Um, he appeared in this courtroom disgusting. 
In fact, the Hebrew word used for filthy here is the word for poop. Uh, So essentially, Joshua, the high priest that represented the people, stood before the courtroom, the holy courtroom of God's law, covered in poop. And I don't know if you've ever been covered in poop, but I have. Um, When I was a new dad, um, it's 23, 24, um, we had our first uh, son, Oliver. He's now going into high school, but but as new dad, um, and we lived in this little guest house behind someone's house house in California, so it was tiny, and in our room was like, here's the bed, here's Oliver's uh, crib, here's the changing table slash dresser, here's the oscillating fan because we didn't have um, air conditioning, um, and then here's a chair, and it's like you, could, you didn't even have to take a step to go to any of those places. It was so um, small, and, uh, and so Kelly was at work, and I was being uh, Mr. Mom for maybe like a couple weeks, like maybe my second week being a Mr. Mom, and, uh, and I was feeling so good about how I was doing. And um, no one told me that when you, like when a baby is a baby, that you should change the diaper really fast, that they have an explosive power down there that, that, uh, that is unstoppable. And so I am changing his diaper and I'm lifting his legs up to, you know, make sure that he's all good and clean um, and put powder on, which I know we don't do anymore, but then we did. And I, you know, I was already, and then all of a sudden, I mean, like a cannon, I've never seen something so powerful and it just completely shot out. And again, remember no air conditioning, oscillating fan right here. It hits the fan, it goes all over the place because our places, it's not just a saying, it actually happens. And so it hit the fan, went all over the place, and I am covered in poop. That's Joshua. Joshua is standing before the holy courtroom of God's law, covered in human filth. Then you've got Satan. And Satan is standing to his right side, ready to accuse him. Now, y'all don't think about this when Dave's leading us in worship. But, but, but so Satan is over to the right, right? And he's standing there as the accuser. Now, Satan is a fascinating character in the Bible because he doesn't appear that much. But when he does, it's significant. We see uh, Satan at the very beginning of the story as the serpent. Uh, when Adam and Eve disobeyed God, what, was it, what, what did the serpent do? He came to them and he said, hey, God's not really a loving God. God's a withholding God. In fact, you see that fruit that he told you not to eat from? He doesn't want you to be all that you can be. He doesn't want you to be fully alive. He doesn't want you to be fully you. If you eat that, you will be like God. You won't need God anymore. You don't need to depend on him. You can be independent. Take. So we get introduced to Satan as this kind of tempter, this one that that whispers into our minds, God doesn't really love you. We see him in the book of Job as the one who goes before God in this holy courtroom and says, the only reason Job is good, the only reason Job obeys is because you bless him. You stop blessing him, I'm sure he'll turn on you. We see uh, Satan as the one who's tempting Jesus in the wilderness after his baptism, before he begins his public ministry. The apostle Peter calls him a roaring and devouring lion, and the apostle John calls him a murderer and the father of lies. But here... In Zechariah's vision, we see him take on a different role. He takes on the role of the outraged prosecutor in the courtroom of God's holy law. He may be the father of lies, but when it comes to accusing us, he has plenty of truth on his side, right? Charles Spurgeon is one of my favorite, Charles Spurgeon, one of my favorite preachers. Um, he said that, um, uh, that any day, any hour of any day, If Satan wants to accuse us, we'll furnish him the material necessary for the charges. 
So Satan is there in this vision, and he's the one as our accuser. And you and I, we've all heard that voice. We've all heard the voice of the accuser. Maybe when things start falling apart in your life or things turn out differently than what you had hoped or, or things fall apart, don't you hear in the back of your mind, he's punishing you. You deserve this. Or maybe you go to start a connect group or you finally work up the nerve to invite a coworker or, or a neighbor to church with you or, or you decide, all right, I'm actually going to tell them about Jesus today. Don't you hear in the back of your mind, but if they know who you really are, you hypocrite. Or if you go to pray because you really need God to show up. And don't you hear, why should he listen to you? When was the last time you prayed? Why do you only come to him when you need something? Or maybe when you fall into that sin again, that sin that you'd worked so hard to overcome, that sin that you said I would never do again, you fall into it again, don't you hear? How dare you? After all that Jesus has done for you, don't you dare ask forgiveness for that again. Or what's mind-boggling to me is that uh, in any moment, in any day, an image of something I saw on a playground when I was eight years old that after I looked at it brought so, so much shame and guilt to me that that image in great detail can come back to my mind like it was yesterday. Who brings that stuff up? It's not the Holy Spirit. That's not conviction. It's Him. It's the accuser. If you've, uh, if you've seen the musical Les Mis or watched the movie or, or, or read the book, um, you know that it's a story about a man, Jean Valjean, who's a very repentant man. But he has this, uh, this police officer who's constantly hounding him because he doesn't think that Jean Valjean has truly repented. Javert. Javert is constantly on the chase after Jean Valjean. And it's in, ja it's in Javert's obsession with justice that we see him transformed into the villain in the story. Because justice without mercy is not God, it's Satan. So this is a little bit of a side point, but I think it's worth us asking ourselves, has our zeal for justice ever turned us into the villain in someone else's story? Has your zeal for justice ever turned you into the villain in someone else's story? Have you ever been a mouthpiece for the accuser's voice? Um, not too long ago, um, Oliver, who's now, like I said, going into high school, uh, some things had been happening that I wasn't happy with, and we were kind of at each other a lot. And, um, and so I said, Oliver, we're going we're gonna to go to breakfast tomorrow. And, uh, and so it was a very formal thing. And so we go to breakfast, and, um, and Oliver's just kind of staring at me. And, and I start, and I say, hey, Ollie, I'm, I'm sorry. I... I've been getting very frustrated with you. I've been getting very angry. I haven't had patience. Um, I'm sorry. I feel like the way that I've been acting has really just made this not a good relationship. And, um, and I saw his face kind of, kind of draw, you know, just kind of like, huh. And, uh, and I said, why are you making that face? He said, well, ever since you said we were going to breakfast, I've like tried to play all the scenarios of how you would start this conversation. And this wasn't how I thought you would start it. I never even imagined that you would start it by apologizing. And so that piqued my interest. And so I said, well, Oliver, how did you think I would start the conversation? And he began to tell me some scenarios he had played through in his, in his mind in his bed the night before. Um, and it hit me that I was his accuser that I, I was a mouthpiece for the accuser to my firstborn son. Have you ever been 
a mouthpiece for the accuser. Because justice without mercy is never God. It's him. It's that guy. So in this vision, in this courtroom, you got Joshua standing there covered in filth. You've got Satan standing there ready to accuse. But you got one other person in this vision. And this person is the angel of the Lord. Now, the angel of the Lord is a fascinating character in the Bible because he appears throughout the Old Testament and then vanishes in the New Testament. And when he appears in the Old Testament, like when he's wrestling uh, Jacob in in Genesis 32, uh, when he appears in the Old Testament, he speaks for God and he speaks of God in the first person. So most theologians and scholars believe that when you see the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, what you are seeing is a pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. You're seeing the second person of the Trinity. You're seeing Jesus before he put on flesh. So you've got Joshua standing there in filthy clothes. You've got Satan standing there ready to accuse. And then you've got Jesus. And Jesus is the only one who does anything in this vision. He's the only active participant in the vision. Joshua is standing there covered in filth, but he doesn't do anything. Satan is standing there ready to accuse, but he doesn't. And then you've got Jesus actively doing things. And he does three things. He chooses Joshua, he cleans Joshua, and he clothes Joshua. In this vision that God gave Zechariah to give to his people who are broken and messed up and who have messed it up, they think beyond repair. He gives them a vision where Jesus actively chooses, cleans, and clothes. The very first thing... this, this blows me away. The very first thing that happens in this vision, after Zacharias sets it up, is we hear the voice of the Lord say to Satan, the Lord rebuke you. The Lord rebuke you. Has not God already chosen Jerusalem? Is he not like a man, a burning stick snatched from the fire? It's as if at the very beginning of this court case, Jesus looks right past Joshua, covered in his filth, looks directly at Satan, and he says, you have nothing to bring here. There's nothing you can tell me about Joshua that will change how I feel about him. This has already been decided. This has been decided before the beginning, before the foundation of the earth. Ephesians 1.4 says, For God chose us in him before the foundation of the earth to be holy and blameless in his sight. This court case starts with Jesus silencing the prosecutor, saying there is nothing to say. I've already chosen to love Joshua. Listen, if God's people were dependent on their own faithfulness, there would have been an end to them long ago. But that's not where their hope and their safety rest. It rests on the immutable character and the faithfulness of an everlasting, unchangeable God who chose them. And why did he choose them? What did they have to bring to the table? Well, God tells us in Deuteronomy 7, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, For you are the fewest of all people, but it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. God looks at his people and he says, hey, it wasn't about what you had to bring to the table. It wasn't because you were so strong and powerful and many in numbers. In fact, you were weak. In fact, you were the smallest in numbers. I chose you just because. 
I tell this story a lot, but it's also uh, one of my favorites and it always makes me happy to tell. But, uh, and I'm telling a lot of Oliver's stories and he gave me permission to do this, um, but I know he'll probably never want to come to church again because I've talked about him so much. But um, when he was two, we would do this thing at bath time where um, he would say, Dad, why do you love me? And I would say, all right, well, why do you think I love you? And, um, uh, and then he would come up with a list of things that he thought made him lovable. So sometimes he'd say, like, is it because I'm so brave? And I'd say, no, you're very brave, but that's not why I love you. And he'd say, is it because I climbed that tree today? No, you did climb that tree today, but no, that's not why I love you. Is it because I run so fast? No, you run incredibly fast, but that's not why I love you. Uh, is it because I'm so obedient? Definitely no. Um, and, and then he would act frustrated, and he would say, ah, then why do you love me? And I would look at him and I would say, just because you're mine. I love you just because you're mine. Going back to that question that we asked at the beginning, have you ever wondered if God is done with you? Have you ever worried that he's over you? He's not. You're still here. He chose you because he loved you and he loved you because he chose you. He loves you just because you're his. The past is no barrier to the future when it comes to God's love and his mercy and his grace. This holy courtroom, the very first thing that God wants his people to know, that Zechariah declares to them, is that the Lord looks past their sin at the accusing voice and says, shut up, I love you. So that's the first thing he does, which is pretty awesome. But then he does two more things. He takes off Joshua's filthy clothes and he cleans him. And and then it says he looks at Joshua. Imagine that moment where he looks at Joshua, who's been covered in poop, and he says, see, I've cleaned you up. I've taken away all your sin." And then he clothes him in rich garments. Now listen, it's great to be forgiven. It's great to experience a pardon, to experience grace and mercy, to be cleaned. But something so much more is happening here. And it's what makes the gospel so powerful. Because Jesus isn't just cleaning Joshua up. He's clothing Joshua in rich garments. See, if all Jesus does is clean him up, he's pardoned. That means he's allowed to leave the courtroom knowing he's free of guilt. Clean slate. I'm clean. I'm new. Yay. That feels good for maybe a day if you're lucky. But what happens if you get dirty again? So there's something so much more going on because Jesus doesn't just clean Joshua up. He doesn't just say, hey, you've got a clean slate. He dresses him in rich garments. You see, if all Jesus did was clean him up, Joshua is free to leave God's presence knowing he's guilt-free. But because Jesus takes another step and clothes him, that means Joshua is free to stay near God in the presence of God knowing that he has nothing to fear, that he is clothed in a garment that cannot be soiled. Now, how can, how can this happen? This doesn't really, it doesn't, it's not fair. It doesn't make sense. How can, how can Jesus just, I mean, if you've been here with us this summer, you've seen the people of God have done horrible things. You can't just wipe that clean. 
If you examine your own heart, you know you've done some horrible things. You know you've hurt some people in some significant ways. That can't just be wiped clean. Why is, how can this vision even make sense? Well, a few thousand years later, or not, not a few thousand, a few hundred years later, Jesus would walk the earth, put flesh on, and he would tell lots of stories. And, and a lot of the stories he told um, were real confusing, but I don't think any are more confusing uh, than this one. At least this one has troubled me for the longest time. It's a story that Jesus says where a king is throwing a wedding banquet, and nobody shows up to this wedding banquet that's invited. And so the king goes to his servants and he says, hey, go out and just invite anyone who wants to come. Just invite people off the street. We're going to have this party and it's going to be great. And so just, just go ask. Anyone who wants to come can come. And so the party ends up happening and it's full. It's full of people right off the street at this beautiful, amazing wedding banquet. But then Jesus says, the king notices one guy at the party who's not wearing the right clothes. And this infuriates the king. So much so, the king is filled with so much wrath that he calls his servants and he says, I want you to have that guy taken out and thrown into the darkness where there's wailing and gnashing of teeth. And when you hear wailing and gnashing of teeth in the Bible, that means hell. So it's like, I mean, this, this king was so angry that this guy showed up not dressed appropriately. All right, you're thinking, or at least I'm like, all right, everyone is off the street. He didn't, why are you mad at this guy? He didn't know he's going to a wedding that day. He didn't know that he was supposed to wear the right clothes. Well, implied in the story is that when the king sent out his servants to invite people off the streets, they also gave them the proper clothes to wear to participate. So everyone in this party has put on the appropriate clothes given to them by the king. But this one guy said, no, I'll pass. I'm going to go in without that clothing. Now, Hearing this story, you might think, all right, Jesus is giving us a warning. Like, don't show up um, not wearing the right clothes. And maybe that's there. But I think Jesus told this story because he wanted us to know he was going to be that guy. He was going to be the guy that shows up at the wedding banquet in inappropriate clothes. That that day when Zechariah got this vision of this heavenly courtroom where, where Jesus cleans Joshua and takes away his filthy clothes and puts rich garments on him, that Jesus knew really what that meant was that he was going to put on those filthy clothes. That the only way he could dress Joshua in rich garments was to give him his. Jesus would stand before the courtroom of God's law covered in our filth and our sin. Why? So that you and I could be forever covered in his righteousness. That's the, God, that's the good news of the gospel. 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin, to become sin, to be covered in our sin. Why? So that you and I might be covered in the righteousness of God. So in this courtroom, you got Joshua, who was staying there in filthy rags, but now is covered in a righteous robe, You've got Satan standing there ready to, to prosecute, but silenced. And then you've got Jesus. So what does that make him in this courtroom? Defendant, prosecutor, defense attorney. Jesus is our advocate. And as our advocate, Jesus has set up an infallible defense. Because when Jesus goes before the judge... He's not going before the judge pleading and begging for grace for his client, for the defendant. That's what I always feel like. I always feel like every time I mess up, Jesus is like, Zach, all right, I'm going to go. All right, God the Father, 
can we forgive Zach again? Boys will be boys. You know, he'll try better next time. Like, can we show him grace one more time? No, that's not who Jesus is. Jesus, as our defense attorney, is going before the judge and he's demanding justice. He's not pleading for grace. He's demanding justice. He's showing his nailed, scarred hands and demanding justice. He's made a case of double jeopardy because he knows it would be unjust of God to take punishment for the same sin twice. As our defense attorney, Jesus has set up an infallible defense. You see, when Jesus took the punishment for our sin, the case was closed. It cannot be reopened. I don't care what you've done. It can never be reopened. On the cross, justice and mercy have been forever linked. You cannot separate them. As another prophet, Isaiah, said of Jesus, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. Is God done with you? His punishment secures your peace. Can I ever be clean again? His punishment secures our peace. Have I messed it up too bad? His punishment secures our peace. But wait, you don't know what His punishment secures our peace. The cross declares to all of us that we are so bad that Jesus had to die for us, but also so loved that he wanted to do it. So you and I, we all might need to repent today, but maybe it's not of what you thought you needed to repent. We need to repent of our refusal of the righteousness of Christ. We need to repent of doubting God's goodness because of our own sin. We need to repent of thinking our sins are too big for God. Martin Luther, the, uh, the father of the Reformation, uh, said, what is it about our arrogance, our pride, that thinks that anything we have done or ever will do is too big that it cannot be covered by the blood of God's own son? His punishment, his punishment secures our peace. The Apostle John, one of Jesus' closest friends on earth, at the end of his life would write to God's people, My children, I write to you so that you will not sin. But if you do sin, when you do sin, know that we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for our sins, but the sins of the whole earth. Martin Luther, after he nailed those 95 theses to that church door in Germany, a lot of religious people didn't like him because he was calling out a lot of practices that that were were not godly, were not biblical, that that kept people from experiencing the grace of God. And so he had to go into hiding. He went in hiding in this place called Wartburg Castle where he was in isolation for a long time. And he went through a little bit of a spiritual depression there. And while he was there, he wrote his best friend, Philip Melanchthon, on May 24th, 1521. And in this letter, he described the spiritual depression that he was in. And he talked about how he got out of it. And he said, uh, one night when it was really bad, he, he, uh, he was asleep, but he said it didn't feel like he was asleep. It felt like he was awake. He said he had a vision of Satan. And Satan was right over him. And he had this scroll with all of Martin Luther's sins written on it. 
And it was a very long scroll. And Martin Luther said, Satan just started going down one by one, just saying the sins aloud. And and Martin Luther said he couldn't breathe. He felt this weight on him so strongly. Um, But then when he just couldn't take it anymore, he jumped out of bed and he shouted, it's all true, Satan. And many more sins which are known only to God. But write this at the bottom of your scroll. The blood of Jesus Christ, God's son, purifies, cleanses me from all my sin. And then he grabbed the inkwell off his writing desk and hurled it at where he thought Satan was, who wasn't really there. And the inkwell shattered against the back wall. And to this day, you can go to Wartburg Castle and see that ink spot. Have you correctly identified your accuser? Have you correctly identified who's accusing you? That's not the conviction of the Holy Spirit. It's him. Now listen, if if you don't believe in Jesus, I would not want to stand in that holy courtroom without him as my defense attorney. But if he's your advocate, he tells us whoever believes in him, he will not condemn. So when the accusations come, and they will come, if he's your advocate, you can turn to Satan and say, you got me. It's all true. And let me tell you what I did yesterday. But then you can turn and look at your advocate, your defense attorney, Jesus, the one who chose you, cleansed you, and clothed you. And you can smile and say, I'm so glad it's all about justice and grace. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for this vision. I thank you uh, for how many times I have needed to come back to it to be reminded of the truth. Father, the lies of the accuser are so strong, but the truth that the accuser speaks is even stronger. Father, I pray that you would help us uh, look to you to silence that voice. That we, as a people, would sit in the amazing beauty of being cleansed and clothed by you so that we, like Zechariah, would say, put a clean turban on us so we can go out and serve. Father, may the gospel be so true to our hearts that our service in the world that you've placed us is as a result of that. Father, I don't know what each of us are struggling with this morning, but you do. Father, would you continue as we move towards your table and as we worship you through song, may you continue to speak to our hearts the truth that combats the lie, that we have been chosen, cleansed, and clothed because of Jesus Christ, your Son. And we pray all of this in his name the name of our defense attorney, our advocate, the name that is more powerful than all names. In Jesus Christ, we pray all of these things. Amen.